0: Praise the Lord. Come up, on, accessories. Hey, keys in the whips, fit melodies for it's like she's
1: next to me. Hello. Welcome back to Future Prairie Radio. Where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth. This is season 6, episode 10, in the realm of the ancestors with libretto.
0: They forgot how to rhyme, let's show them how to crack enzymes. Libretto
1: is a rapper from California, now based in Oregon. He grew up in one of Los Angeles' roughest neighborhoods. He spent his childhood in a constant state of eviction, going from house to house, sometimes living out of the family station wagon. It was a daily struggle that didn't stabilize until high school, when his dad retired and, at the urging of his older sister, relocated the young rapper Libretto and his brother up to Portland, Oregon. Once there, libretto spent his first year sequestered in the tiny suburb of Milwaukee, but eventually he made his way up to North Portland, met more rappers and fell in with the then ascendant Lifesavers. He started performing more and by 2004, local Portland media declared him to be hip hop's next big thing. Then he went to prison. His career in the arts was put on hold. He stayed in prison for four and a half years. While he was there, Libretto read voraciously. He studied business. He paid another inmate to teach him piano with bags of coffee. He changed his diet. He got into the best shape of his life. And once he got out, he opened up his own personal training business. He now helps multiple nonprofits that work in crime prevention around Portland. He's also taken the pages upon pages of lyrics he wrote in prison to develop new albums of music including his most recent full album release, Rusty Blades. It's amazing, powerful music. We're gonna link it in the show notes for this episode and I can't wait for you to hear it. Please enjoy Libretto.
0: My name is Michael Jackson. My stage name is Libretto. I'm originally from Watts, California. Relocated to Portland, Oregon in like 96, 1997. Uh, I have a daughter who was born in 99. Uh, She's 23 now. And my son is 13. He was born in 2009. I've been artist in music, hip hop, since about 1986. And I have been doing it professionally since 2001. Uh, when I signed my first record deal with BSI Records, a local record company here in Portland. And I was fortunate enough to use that single to sign another record deal with Democ Records out of Los Angeles in 2004. And I am connected here in Portland, Oregon with the Misfit Massive crew, Lifesavers, DJ Reverend Shines, Wolverine, and the rest of the crew. I'm also a co founder of a nonprofit called Leaders Become Legends. And I'm a mentor and a case manager for POIC Rosemary Anderson High School. And I do culturally specific work in mental health through Lions for Life, which is a suicide prevention agency locally here in Portland. I'm a dinosaur, so <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, that started in the streets of LA, in South Central LA. Um, Hip hop was brewing at that time in its its peak form, you know, and I was just a student of it. Have always been, started out with graffiti, which led to break dancing, which lastly led to me being an MC. I'll use 86 as my date because that was the first time that I've done a show that I ever performed in front of somebody. And I was like 10, 11 years old, and I did my first performance at a skating ring in LA the DJ used to have a section they would take the skates off and then the people would dance like on in the skating ring and I kept bugging him to let me get on the microphone I didn't even have no written raps at that time everything was strictly off the cuff freestyle off my head and I was like 10 11 years old and he liked it and he let me come back and do it again and again and um yeah so 86 was like the first time I've ever done like a live performance doing this emceeing in hip hop culture. At 10 years old, what I felt was the need to like broadcast my skills. Cause I couldn't skate first of all. So I never learned how to skate. So I used to just be at the skate ring. I was the dude sitting on the side watching everybody skate. So now I can get on the mic and here's something that I can do. I can do good at is put words together and rhyme them together. And so, you know, that hunger was just the need for me to let people know that, look, I can do something dope too. And, you know, I'm real young. I mean, we was poor. I got pro wings on with fat laces and, you know, OP coats with with, with fur coming out of the holes on the side. And, um, you know, here's these little ghetto kids, but hey, I got something dope that I can do, and I want to show y'all that I'm dope, that, you know, um, I'm going to be the next thing coming out of this part of LA, you know what I mean? So that's what that's what really drove me was, you know, to just really broadcast my skills and ability. It wasn't nothing financial. I wasn't looking to get paid or get famous. I just wanted to show the people in that skating ring that I, I could rap and that I was dope at it. I, I do remember though, after that, the first rhyme I wrote, because after that I started writing. And I wrote this rhyme and it was like uh, my name is Michael J and NASA fat. I wrote this rhyme while I was kicking back. I'm a MC, rock this place, suck an MC, couldn't light a fireplace. <laughs> 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 Something like that. And I was, I, I was like 10 years old, bro. Well, I was listening to Rakim and, you know, Cool Mo D, LL. You know, this is back when KDAY, K-D-A-Y in L.A. was like the one and only hip hop station that was 24 hours hip hop in the United States, really in the world back in the 80s. And so, you know, there was no East Coast, West Coast really back then. It was just hip hop. So we was so, you know, we were hearing all of the different styles. And so, you know, I was trying to, you know, mimic the the New York, MCs, or the MCs, you know, so that's when I first started writing and taking it seriously once the the DJ was like, hey man, you're good, you know, he was like, you got up here, you wasn't scared, you grabbed the mic, you know, I was looking at the crowd, I wasn't like looking down on my shirt, and I was just rapping, you know, and all my partners that was with me was like, man, and we used to just sit at the Taco Bell, he had a Taco Bell in our hood, and we would be banging on the desk, banging on the tables, and then my man would be beatboxing, and I would be rhyming, so... You know, it just started coming into fruition for me to start writing eventually. The reason I ended up coming to Portland was because I was living in Watts, California, in the projects, in L.A., in the Jordan Downs. My sister had relocated out here in the early 90s, right? So she came in, like, 91 or something like that. After the the verdict and then the uprising in L.A. in 92, she was just like, Telling my dad, because my father was handicapped, first of all, he has he was retired, well, he wasn't retired then, but he basically worked for Lockheed Aircraft and um, McDonnell Douglas. He helped build stealth bombers back in the day when a stealth bomber first came out uh, during the Cold War and all of that stuff, and what happened was he ended up having some type of renal problems and stuff like that from his work, so he was handicapped. So. My sister talked him into moving to Portland. She was like, "You need to get Michael out of LA. I've been having dreams that something's going to happen to him." You know, it was just a lot going on back then. Yada yada yada. One day I come in from outside, he's like, "Well, I'm thinking about moving to Portland." It was just a lot of gang violence, you know, a lot of shooting. This is prior to the uprising. It was a lot of shootings, a lot of just death and just like it is right now in Portland, you know, but just magnified times 100. Where I was living at, you know, wasn't Safe, the safest place. You know, we in the middle of the inner city in Watts, Compton, and um South Central area. So she just, you know, wasn't feeling good about me being out here. And then my father couldn't control me. So I was out in the street doing stuff he didn't know nothing about. You know, I did my first robbery when I was fourteen. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, I was having guns, doing all kind of stuff. Yeah, so one day I came in, Pops was like thinking about moving to Portland. I was trying to find every place in my neighborhood to stay with somebody. And they were like, nope, can't stay here. Nope, 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 nope. So I ended up having to drive out here with my pops because he wasn't finna go by himself and then ended up coming to Portland. And when I came out here, it was just different. I mean, the first place I landed at was Milwaukee, Oregon. We were living in Milwaukee when I first came here. I'd never even seen Northeast Portland, bro. It took me a while before I even seen MLK, Killingsworth and all of that stuff. Only reason I even seen that because I was trying to go to PCC, so I rode in school. I had my pops car, cause we drove from LA. It was a big old station wagon, Dodge station wagon, like a 77 Dodge, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but um, I was flying to LA back and forth, right? My mother passed in 92 from a car crash in Savannah, Georgia. Um, God bless her soul and we were getting social security checks, right? So those checks were coming every month from my mom. I was using that money to go back and forth to LA, back and forth every weekend. Cause I was like, bro, there's no black people out here. There's nothing. I'm not finna be sitting out here. You know what I'm saying? And then I kept going back and forth and then I finally was looking uh, like, man, I'm getting in school. I graduated with a diploma 4.0 in LA. So I'm like, let me just try to finish school so I can try to get to a four year. Cause I'm still in that range of going to college. And that's how I winded up at PCC. I went to PCC, I was like, oh, here's where the black people were at, right down the street from where we're at right now. You know what I'm saying? And and so while I'm over here, we ended up moving. Once I got in school, my father, we got a place in St. John's by Cathedral Park, right by the bridge on Edison Street. I'm over there, my neighbor who's from Portland, he's a Crip dude, I'm not knowing this at the time, but he sees my California plates and then he sees me wearing purple all the time, which is the color that we would wear in my neighborhood. We ended up talking one day, and he's like, hey, you from L.A.? I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh, I see you wearing that purple. You, you you from Grape Street? I was like, yeah, homie. Like, why are you asking so many questions? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm looking at it, but he's my neighbor, so I'm not trying to be respectful, but I didn't like how he was on me like that. And then uh, he was like, man, you got some homeboys out here. I said, oh, yeah? He was like, yeah, you got some of your big homies. Long story short, he brought these dudes to my house. My big homie, Bink, rest in peace, he just passed away last August, last year. He was like, hey, where you from? You know, we had that conversation, like, man, I'm from the project, Jordan Down, I'm from the project. whoop, whoop, whoop. And he looked it familiar, but I, he'd been in prison a long time, but I knew his nephew, I went to school with his nephew. And once that connection happened, I was in the streets, like I was in LA, but out here in Portland. I wanted to go to Morehouse, right? My father coached track at Morehouse. So here's what happened. We all went to take our SATs in L.A. None of us passed. Like we all played hoop, right? None of us passed the SAT. So my dad was like, "Look, you," because I wanted to go to this Morehouse for computer science. I wanted to. I was like intrigued with computers back then. And once I didn't pass the SAT, dude at Morehouse, who knows? My dad was like, "Look, I can get you in without the SAT, but you got to have this much math." Well, the things about the schools in L.A. and especially in the hood, they just shuffle you through, like. I don't know how I graduated without never taking algebra. Bro, I graduated and I never even took an algebra class. So when I got here, you know, I'm trying to look at these prerequisites to get in the class. I gotta have bro damn near calculus or something crazy to get in Morehouse to do what I was trying to do. And so I said, let me start at the bottom. And I started going to PCC, taking these math classes. So during that time, I run into the homies Music was always in my life, but it wasn't bringing in no dollars, and I wasn't connected with Jumbo and the Lifesavers and them yet. That didn't happen until after that. Sure. Albana and Killingsworth, bro. We was on the Michigan side. This street right here, I could literally see the building from where I'm sitting at. That's the block we used to sit. We All, all this whole block over here used to be all California dudes back in the 90s. And we used to hustle out of this house right here. Apartment number nine is right here and it got technical for a while you know we was uh doing a lot of stuff we shouldn't have been doing but you know we was trying to survive and then once my daughter was born in 99 this really became home you know what i'm saying it was like cuz now i got to support her and you know i got a daughter and that's where things really got turned up yeah so when i met jumbo we connected at one stop records there was a one stop records on Lombard back then I forget the cross street, but it's like right past the Baskin Robbins, where the Baskin Robbins used to be. When you pass Portsmouth, keep going straight, and it was on the left-hand side. I don't know what it is now. Like, 96. This was around that same time. What happened was, Jumbo, I used to go, he used to work in there. And when I moved, because I stayed in by cathedral park, so I didn't know nobody. I used to drive to that. Once I found that record store, I would just go there and hang out. And look at the tapes, look at the CDs. Me and him would talk about hip hop, this, that, and the third, ah, ah, ah. And then one day he was like, hey, do you rhyme? And I was like, yeah, I rhyme. He was like, oh, where? He was like, okay. He was like, man, I make beats. And I was like, oh, yeah? He was like, yeah. He was like, you should come by the house. And, um, you know, I could play you some beats or something, man. And he stayed on 15th and Prescott. Now, back then, woo! gunshots every night. Right there by the corner the store, Jumbo stayed right there. It's really no line, like geographical lines like it is in LA, like neighborhoods. But it's just was the where they lived at. A lot of them lived in that area. Well, Jumbo was an ex Blood Gang member, so he yeah. was one of the originators of Woodlawn Park. He was there to, in the early beginnings. But he was, you know, they, the name of their group was the Lifesavers, which is like a spiritual thing from like the church. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, yeah, so, you know, once I got over there, man, and I met Pricey, his name is Pricey now, back then he used to call himself Bleak, and then I met Dom from Old Dominion, Destro from Boom Bat Project, that's his name now, and just a lot of MCs who were part of the Misfit Massive at that time, my man Trinity, he called himself Snafu back then, E-May, E-may was around back then, e is now a director for Netflix. I spit a rhyme to him, and he was like, yo, you got a dope voice and you got, you're a good storyteller. Mind you, I'm fresh off the block. I haven't really been in a studio or nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like i literally had rhymes in pads that I was writing in from back in LA and I spit something to him. And that's how I basically got emerged into the Misfit Massive crew here in Portland. And from then on, I was over there every day and we were just working. We'll be digging for records. We'll write together. He's, I'll sit there, he making beats. I'll fall asleep, be there all night, wake up. Like, you know what I'm saying? It it just became like a friendship, artistry bond type of thing. And um, that's how I kind of got indoctrinated into Portland hip hop scene here. I didn't have any competition, but the notable artist was definitely uh, Lifesavers, which is Jumbo and Versatile, master KD, Cool Nuts, Um, Maniac Lope, Isaiah, the R&B group, which my man Wolverine and them, DJ Chill was doing his thing back then, Pros and Cons, there was a group called Pros and Cons, Hungry Mob, Mike Crenshaw, I've been knowing Mike for years, like on this block, we used to be over here. Yeah, so like that was like the main hip hop groups around then. Like, they had already had the first po-hop. I was in the second po-hop. Yeah, when I got here, the first po-hop was already done. I think I was here when it happened, but not a part of it. But I was a part of the second one at the at the La Lunas, the old La Lunas Club. Yeah, but not really no competition. Um, I had some beefs but not really no competition as far as like, cause nobody, cast was trying to figure me out. They were like, wait a minute, you from LA, but you rapping with the so-called East Coast rappers. You gotta remember Lifesavers back then were like the East Coast rap dudes. Cool Nuts, Maniac and all of them, Gism, ism can't forget about g Um, Ray Ray, and um, those were like the West Coast, you know, Kenny Mac and all of them. We were like the East Coast rappers or whatever, because we just, War Tim's Fatigues, and, you know, we we, we had, yeah, you know what I'm saying, we had big drums out front. That just means, you know, the drums are out front, in front of the music, mostly, uh, uh, they call it boom-bap hip-hop right now, Um, and stemming from the East Coast, you would have the kick and the snare be very prominent in the mix. It wouldn't be sitting behind the melody, it would be really basically in front of the melody. Um, of a sample or whatever you're doing. And that's what they call boom bap hip hop right now. And that's kind of the New York style of hip hop where the drums are really out front. And then, you know, the sample is kind of in, in in between there somewhere with the bass, but it's more head knocking type stuff. Yeah, 80s to 90s producers, Pete rock DJ Premier, The RZA, you know, uh, Beat Minors, all of those type of, you know, producers, Dr. Dre, you know what I'm saying? If you think about straight out of Compton, boom boom, you know, you think about those drums, you know what I'm saying? That's more of like classic hip hop f- style. So 2001 I signed my first uh, record deal as a professional recording artist and I actually got an advance for an album and got paid for a single. That whole process started me hanging out in Momentum Studios. So Momentum Studios used to be over there on uh Salmon over there like Costa Morrison um off Grand. It just be all the underground rappers hanging out in there uh from Old Dominion, which is a crew out of Seattle. And my man Honoré Osborne was there. Honoré Osborne was working on his album. He had this beat going and I was like, "Oh yeah, I like I'm feeling that beat." He was like, "Bro, you want to jump on this?" I was like, "Oh word?" He's like, "Yeah." So I was like, okay, but I wasn't the type that was like writing right there on the spot. So I was like, you know, I put it on a cassette, dubbed it, took it home, wrote to it, came back, laid it, it made the album. The guy who put out his album, Ezra Erickson. Now Ezra runs a dub reggae label. BSI was a dub reggae label and they sold vinyl all over the world, like reggae stuff they added a hip-hop imprint called One Drop, BSI slash One Drop. Honoré was the first artist on that that they were releasing, and his first album I was on. The dude heard me and was like, told Honori, who is that? And he was like, oh, that's the homie Bretto, Libretto. And Honoré not being a hater, which is why I love that dude to this day, which is ill, Honori basically was like, that's Libretto, he's my man. Know, he said, yo, dude that's putting out my record likes your voice, bro. He thinks you're dope. I was like, word. He's like, yeah, he wants to meet with you. So I'll go by his house, some house over in Southeast somewhere, back there. I don't can't remember exactly where, Belmont area. And um, yeah, he's like, man, I think you're dope. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we're starting this hip-hop imprint off this label. Like, he got records all over. He's running it out of his house. Like, there's like boxes of records everywhere, like being shipped out and stuff. And um Yeah, I'll never forget that day, bro. He's like, "Man, we don't have a lot of money, but you know, I can give you this much in advance." Yaa yaa, say less. You know what I'm saying? Me and Jumbo went and cooked up a song that we was already working on a song, so we basically finished it, and then I laid it, and then you know. He gave us stuff, gave me the advance, not even knowing we had already recorded it, but he's not tripping. He's like, Look, I could pay you for this. So he paid me for that. We turned in a song, two songs actually. Then he gave me 2500 for the album advance. Listen, <laughs> I'm like, I got a yeah. check from rapping. Like, I made it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> to me, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Bro, that was like the epitome of my rapping career right there that single winded up being a one of his biggest singles so Honory's record did huge did good numbers but that single dirty things with the b-side uh alma mater sold out all over and a lot of the records were sold in the uk germany i started charting on cmj you know what i'm saying back then they had this thing called cmj it was like the college music charts because here's what we did we put a sticker on there that said produced by Jumbo with the Lifesavers. Lifesavers had already dropped their album Spirit and Stone on Quantum, which was doing crazy numbers. You know what I'm saying? Like these guys are on tour. That's a whole nother thing right there because they were already going overseas with Black Alicious doing shows. So now I got Jumbo of the Lifesavers on there. So now it's in the record store. The vinyl now is in record stores all over the United States. Steve Aoki, his uh, uh, sister Devin Aoki, you know Steve Aoki is he's the heir to the Benny throne. Okay, he goes by the name of Kid Millionaire, a DJ Kid Millionaire, but he's like a bro. He 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 charged like four million to DJ. So, this dude is starting a label called Democ Records. Right, Block Party was one of his biggest artists. His sister is digging for vinyl, she's a vinyl head, and she follows Quantum. She comes across my record, and she sees produced by Jumbo of the Lifesavers. Lifesavers is signed to Quantum Projects, Homer, Lyrics Born, Black Alicious, Lotteryx, DJ Shadow. She gets it. I'm nobody, like, I don't, I don't, she don't know me from a can of paint, probably never heard my music nothing. She plays it, she likes it, she takes it to her brother like, hey, you should check this dude out, libretto. Steve hears it and he's like, oh, this is dope. You know what I'm saying? Bro, from there, now, let me rewind. I got the $2,500 check. I get a call one day while I'm working on the album. Bretto, sorry to inform you, man, we're folding BSI one drop. We're going out of business. I'm working on my album, right? Mm Like what? But you could keep the twenty five hundred. But yeah, we're not. We're we're shutting it down. I'm without a deal now, right? Damn near eighty percent done of my album. Sixty percent, eighty percent done. In the middle of that, I get the call from my manager, Ken Early. He's like, "Hey," because Ken is like Lifesavers manager. But he, we're, I'm work for hire with him. If he gets me a show, he gets a cut. Any type of contract, he gets a cut. Stuff like that. But I don't. I'm not on contract with him but he got in touch with steve got in touch with ken somehow got his contact this is way before cell phones all that stuff we had two-way pages back then and um he's like hey do you know who steve aoki is i'm like no who's steve aoki he's like have you heard of Benny benihana's i'm like i think so he's like well this guy has a lot of money <laughs> he likes your music and he wants to fly you out to la for a meeting i said what like i'm living in the saint john woods apartments so in a one bedroom mice and all of that right so okay gonna fly me out he flies me out me wolverine went out there and this other dude that was trying to be our manager named skippy this dude named skippy man that was my dude so and my son's mom while i was dating i just really met her back then she we all went to la together right long story short go to la have a good meeting Dude is like, yeah, man, same thing. I love your voice, I love your style, man. Like, you got a real different sound. Like, coming out of LA, I've never heard nobody rapping like you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get back to Portland, he sends the paperwork over, signed a contract, four-year deal with Denmark Records, man, and released Volume, which was my first single, and then my first album dropped in October of 04, Illouette, The Last Element, and that was really like, yeah, that's what, that cemented me like in hip-hop because Steve was huge. And then Volume was one of my biggest singles ever. It got picked up by Tony Hawk, Video Game, Thug on the Ground 2, which is one of his biggest games. That, that game sold over like, it went diamond, over 10 million copies. And uh, my song was on that game. We didn't get any residuals but we did get money up front. I think he gave us like 8000 up front, but we couldn't get nothing on the back end. But yeah, that's kind of what cemented me with, uh, and that was in 04. We did the release party at Doug Fur. That's right when ODB mm-hmm. passed, rest in peace. It was, um, yeah, it was a ill year, that year, yeah. I went on tour with the Lifesavers. In between that album dropping, I went on my first like national tour in 2001, it's called the CaliCom Tour, Delta Funky Homo Sapien, Planet Asia, Schoolyard, Cupmaster Kurt, Motion Man, Lifesavers, and myself. I opened up and I got paid like 250 a show for like 45 shows. Listen, man, I was like, let's go. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, that experience changed me like big time, bro. I've never been on a tour ever. You know what i'm saying and so state to state man and um i really learned about the business that was like a grand awakening to know like okay there's music and then there's the music business you know what i'm saying getting up every day doing the same songs for 45 days maybe two days off in between is strictly business taking care of yourself, not getting too drunk at night after the shows, going to the after parties, being disciplined enough to get back to the hotel to get proper rest, to get up for that next eight hour drive. Business. So it kind of separated, like I finally knew like, okay, this isn't just fun and games. This is really like, once the music is done, the rest is business. So me having that you know, mentality now at such a young age was really the pivotal point in my career moving forward and was really the highlight. That tour was the highlight because from that tour I built relationships that last to this day. And then I gained the attention of other artists who were like, hey, asking me to tour with them because they seen I was I had a hot set. And they were like, yo, you want to open up for me? Lyrics Born asked me to open up for him in 2006. And I went on a nice little two week run with him, you know? And um, it just kind of cemented me as recording artist and performer. Because there's two pieces, and you know. So we, we got to make the music, studio, but then we got to also give it to the public, and that's a whole other ball game. Okay, they were doing a tour, Lifesavers, right? Because we're all crew. Like, I'm on their first album, and then my first album, they're all over that too. But on this tour, I didn't go, because they were going into Canada. I can't get into Canada because I had a felonies. Back then, right? Because I was hustling. You know what I'm saying? So I used to sell pharmaceuticals on the street. And so I, I couldn't get into Canada back then. So I stayed, and I was still here hustling while I got an album out. I'm standing right here on this corner on Albina and Killingsworth. It used to be the Renaissance market right here. Mm-hmm. I'm, hust- I'm pitching. I'm out there doing my thing. OG1, DJ OG1, rolls up on me. He like, bro, what is you doing? I said, nigga, you know what I'm doing. What's happening? He's like, man, you got an album out, bro. You out here selling drugs? I'm like, yeah, nigga. You know what I'm saying? This I gotta eat. That music ain't paying the bills right now. Cause back then, bro, I got it advanced. You gotta recoup before you even see anything. And I was signed to a big deal. So the publicist was getting like 12,000, then it was this much for this, this much for that bro. I didn't even understand, I don't. I, I never seen a check from Democ. He probably broke even maybe, like years after my album came out, you know what I'm saying? But it was like, cause I moved like 30, 40,000 units total, like as far as from back then. And that's on the underground, that was, you know, 100,000 was considered platinum on the underground back then. Mm-hmm. So I'm hustling. OG1 rolls up, he's like, man, meet me at SCI, tomorrow morning, man, like, you got to get off these corners. I go to SCI. He say, you finna help me run this studio program up here. You're going to teach the MCs how to rap. I was like, what? He was like, how much you want to make? I was like, what you mean? How much you want to make? I'm sitting in the HR office. I said, I don't know. Like back then, $20 was a lot of money back then. I said, $20 hour." I just threw a number out there. He's like, okay, $20 an hour." I signed a little thing for my taxes and all that. You starting tomorrow. You know, OG One is originally from Watts, so he grew up like down the street from me. But he's my elder, so you know I was Mm -hmm. a kid. But anyway, so we always had a relationship since we knew each other. But he basically put his yeah put me in there. So boom, I'm working for SCI for like for years, bro. Like 2004, and I got laid off in 2008 when all of that recession stuff was going on. I was the first to go. I literally came into work one day, and they were like, um, S- Cinda was my supervisor. Cinda Jackson was my supervisor. And she's like, Bretto, I'm sorry, but uh, we had to cancel the MC class. I said, what do you mean? No warning. I show up to work, they got your check already ready. What? So now, Obama gets in. He's stretching out the unemployment. Remember when he kept stretching it out? He kept, uh, like, you were able to file for unemployment, because I ran out of unemployment. I was, but then he let everybody go to college. So I was going to Mount Hood. I was studying music theory. I said, you know what? I want to learn how to read and write music. So people will stop calling me a rapper, because I hated that term, a rapper. I wanted to be called a musician. you know. But I knew I had to understand music, so I started going to school in Mount Hood. During that time, I'm doing stuff here and there, surviving. Yeah, I was doing a lot of robberies, bro. All right? Like, that's like I told you, I did my first robbery in 14. And I have no fear of going in banks, going in credit unions, Western unions, tying people up, taking what I thought belonged to me. That's what I did. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so, that wasn't really hitting. We was going on a lot of dry runs. We wasn't getting a lot of money. Mm -hmm. My cousin knows my situation i'm basically living pillar to post at this time i'm staying with with your pops for a minute remember that it was just it was hard bro like i was trying not to go back to la because my daughter was here Mm. so i was trying to stay in portland but i was doing bad you know what i'm saying and so my cousin calls me up one day says i need to talk to you he's in new york your ticket's finna be at the airport i'm like okay i know it must be something illegal because he got to fly me to new york to tie this conversation so, you know, I go out there and he's like, hey, we're going to drive to North Carolina, get these guns. We're going to drive them back to New York and we're going to sell them. I'm going to give you a cut. He's just trying to help me get some money. So I'm like, shit, okay, whatever. So this is Memorial Weekend 2010, because he don't have license, so he couldn't drive. So that's why he wouldn't need me out there, you know what I'm saying, to bring the guns back. because like an eight hour drive from North Carolina to New York. You know, during that time, bro, something else popped up. Somebody on his block was like, hey, there's this move going on. It's gonna be like 600,000 in here at this time. My cousin asked me, did I wanna do it? We never ended up going to North Carolina. I made the worst decision ever in my life. Went in there, did that move. It went all the way bad. And that's where the journey started with my incarceration. Mm. September of 2010 music was it was always there bro it never went nowhere but it was just survival and life was taking precedent over it at that time Mm -hmm. but the music ended up helping me in the long run once the feds got involved because when I first got picked up I was in New York State uh, detention and correctional institutions um, Rikers Island all of that stuff and then I was and then I was able to get out on bail right so I got out on bail and I was flying back and forth from Portland to New York. My court dates were like two months apart. So my lawyer was like, you're good, just make sure to make these court dates. So I would you know, fly out there, they set it over, I fly back to Portland. My tickets were like, basically, I was jet blowing it. Like, get there and I'll leave the next day. You know what I'm saying? This particular day, November 5th, 2010, the judge was like, okay, we're setting it over, boom. I'm getting ready to walk out the door and I get out the door of the courthouse. This is in the Bronx, Bronx Community Courthouse, on 161 in the Bronx. And I just hear these voices. I know police. I know they have a certain tone of how they talk. So I'm walking, but their voices are coming from behind me. And they're like, Mr. Jackson. And I heard that shit. And I turn around. U.S. Marshals, we're detaining you. I'm like, oh, shit. Feds picked the case up. So I'm walking out of court. They set the date over, but I I knew it, bro, because it was just weird in that courtroom that day. It was like, I just it just felt real weird. And then my cousin was always going to court with me. So when I went in front of the, the people to sign the paper that you signed before you leave, my cousin gets up and he had his homeboy with him swindle. They both get up to walk out with me and the bailiff says, you two sit down. Now, my cousin, he's sucking stump, right? Big old tall 6'5 dude, grown ass. He's sucking stump. He looking at me like this, like, something ain't right, right? Mm. So I said, fuck it. I'm finna walk out anyway. I'm out of here. I'm in denial. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I walk out the door. When I get out to the hallway, Marshall's booked me. And my cousin comes out. He's like, what? He's like... I'm crying, bro. I'm in tears, fam. I'm like, what the hell? Just like, man, my cousin, like, what we got to do to get him out? He's like, nah, it doesn't work like that. He has to go in front of the magistrate judge. He has to put together a bail packet. Like, you know, so I leave out the courthouse in cuffs. Everybody looking at me like, oh, shit, damn, I'm already in court. Most people come into court and go to jail. I'm leaving out in cuffs. It's the marshals they in a regular light car regular clothes you know what i'm saying take me downtown 500 pearl street this is the southern district of new york in manhattan this is where the big dogs go you know what i'm saying and that shit was the illest shit i've ever experienced in my life bro getting booked into the federal system you know what i'm saying was a uh, very it was an experience i don't wish on nobody you know and um yeah that was the start of the uh the federal journey and the music came back once the feds picked it up because now all of that history is a part of my federal like they have this thing called a pre-sentence report i had to talk to a lady and tell her my whole life story all the way down the line the prosecution wants it they try to use it against you but this worked out on my behalf because i was able to talk about democ i was able to talk about the record deals the touring everything you know what I'm saying? And so, when I when I finally got in front of the judge to make bail, he seen all the ties I had in Oregon. And this took me a long time. I was in there like a year before I made bail, mind yes. you. Wow. So, in MDC Brooklyn, downtown Brooklyn in a federal holding facility. I'm in there trying to get bail, but the judge, he's like, old oh, judge, God bless his soul, Robert Patterson. Coolest dude I ever met. Never thought I would say a judge was cool. This dude, 90 years old. He been on the bench 40, 50 years, bro. You know what I'm saying? He's like looking at my ties to the community, asking me, am I still gang banging? I'm like, no, that's in the past, but I am still affiliated. That's my neighborhood. You know, the prosecution is on me. Like Mr. Jackson's a flight risk. He's this, he's that. Just trying to get me to stay in detention. You know what I'm saying? But all praises to the most high, I was able to leverage some of that stuff I did here. I had people in Portland write me 50 letters. I had like 50 letters from people out here who were writing on my behalf. People from Oregonian, Willamette Wigley, OG1, Cinda, SCI. Everybody was writing me letters, like trying to get me to get out. So I did wind up getting out on bail. Wow. $250,000 bail um, and I had to stay in New York. So I fought my case out there on house arrest for 13 months. Now, the feds can't deny you work. It's so one thing about the government. If you have a job and you're on bail, they you they got to let you work, right? Guess what my work is? I'm a professional recording artist. All of the proof is in my pre-sentence report. Matt, Nelkin, Liquid B Records, out here. Well, first I talked to my lawyer. I said, hey, so if my if my job is music, if I have a show in Let's just say Portland. Do you think I'll be? Don't even try it. I'm not going in front of the judge with that. You're crazy, Jackson. No, this is my lawyer, right? I said, man, no, F that, man. He said, look, if you're helping on this, I'll talk to the prosecutor first before we take it to the judge. I said, OK, bet. So I hit Matt A, hey, bro, get me a show out there. Send me the contract saying that it's paying me. I don't care if it ain't paying me. Just put it on there that I'm getting paid. Mm-hmm. I want to see if this shit work. So he gets the contract, sends it to me. I'm going uh, $300 for a 15-minute set, right? <laughs> Some shit like that, right? <laughs> so I get the contract, bro. I sign it, get it to the prosecutor. Prosecutor checks it out. The marshals out here in Portland go to the venue. It was at the Crown Room. Remember the Crown Room? That was right there on like 3rd or something like that in Everett, like right there, yeah, by that parking lot, um, by the old Republican Chinese uh, cafe. The marshals went to check out the venue.
1: Beforehand.
0: Yes, to make sure it ain't no bullshit. Uh-huh. So they went there, and bro, we took it in front of the judge, bro, and the judge approved it. Boo! I'm on a plane to Portland, bro, ankle bracelet on, everything. Got to able to see my son. My son was born in 09, you know what I'm saying? Right, and my daughter's here, so I'm trying to see them. You know? And I was in a relationship at the time uh, with a female back then. so. You know, I was flying back to see her, and sometimes I actually did the show, you know, because I needed money, but most of the time, bro, I was just using that to get back and forth. Mm -hmm. So that's where music comes back in. Yeah, music uh, began to transform my life, I would say in the year 2011, 12, um, when I really started diving into music theory and learning how to read and write music. Because remember, I was going to college to learn music at Mount Hood. And so once I got incarcerated, I continued studying. And even when I got out on bail, I was still studying music theory. And so when I ended up getting sentenced and actually getting my time, when I got to prison, there were actual pianos on the yard. Like in federal prison, there's a band room. No electronic equipment though. Just bass, acoustic guitar, piano, drums, microphones, stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? And so I was able now to take the knowledge that I was gaining from reading all these damn books in my cell about music theory and now applying it to an actual instrument, which was the piano. And so that's where music comes in to save my life because in prison, there's so much going on and you can get involved in a lot of different dangerous situations, but I always had that outlet in music. And this is not talking about writing rhymes. I'm already an MC. I'm trying to hone my craft as a musician now. So I'm studying music theory and going out here playing the piano, as well as being on Crip Time, which is a, a certain type of time in prison where you're part of a prison gang, and you have to survive because who, where you eat with in the chow hall, that's who you show your allegiance to. Anything goes off with them people at that table you eating with, you got to put your life on the line. Possibility, at any any time, it could happen—a race riot or anything. So the music kept me out of the way. You know, while Caswell be on the yard playing chess, playing cards, and pinochle, I'm in the in the band room working on my strokes on the piano. You know what I'm saying? Paying this guy, this guy's helping me. I'll pay him a bag of coffee a month. I get him two bags of coffee for two fifty a piece. kiffy, microwave heat up coffee, instant, and he would teach me. This dude's playing like Jop he he's paying like he's playing like Joplin, bro, like just ridiculous. You know, he he's a, he's been down ten years, white dude from DC. And um, yeah, he basically taught me and was helping me like the rest of my bed. And that's what kept me out of the way. Along with me balancing out the time with writing rhymes, I wrote over 400 songs um, while I was incarcerated. And I wrote about 20 songs on the piano um, while I was in there. And so wow. that's what really kept me out of the way, man. I mean, I had to get in some situations cause you just some stuff you can't avoid. But most of the time I had my months planned out. Like every day, Every week was I did something different, and that's how I did my time. So like one week, I read all the books that people sent me in prison. The next week, I would write rhymes that whole week. The third, the third week, I would do my investments, Wall Street Journal, studying my stocks, bonds, uh, 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 commodities, all of that, doing my financial literacy stuff. The last week would be dedicated to like music theory. This is how I did every month. And I knocked back 61 months like that because you have to compartmentalize, you know what I'm saying, to get stuff done. So I would take a week off from doing something, you know, like one week I'm writing rhymes. I'm not touching the piano. I'm not doing no music theory. I'm just writing rhymes the whole week. You know what I'm saying? And that's how I got a lot of stuff done and got a lot of material done. And that's where that discipline kicks in. And bro, yeah, it was a a life changing experience, man. The discipline that comes with the physical is is something that you have to be on. When you're in prison, on that, like, crip time or gang time or whatever, you have to work out because you're like a warrior. You're like a soldier. You know what I'm saying? And so if something goes in, you got to be able to defend yourself. So working out was mandatory. So that discipline that I had from working out, you know, It was like when I first got there, I was working out three times a day for the first two years. Like anytime they call it a move to the yard, I was out there doing something. You know what I'm saying? And that's how that discipline just stayed with me throughout my whole bid, which is created the brand of Bredo Chisel Fitness. It started in prison because there's no weights in prison. So it's all body weight and it's all medicine balls and dudes lifting each other up and stuff like i would have dudes on my back doing push-ups you know what i'm saying to get any type of resistance because there's no weights so you know mostly everybody is dieting trying to get a six pack and just trying to stay as, as chiseled as possible you know what i mean and that's where um that's where that whole Brettle chisel fitness comes into play They're leaders sure. become legends is a mentoring wellness organization that specializes in workforce development, uh, mental health, cognitive therapy, and spiritual and artistic wellness for so-called African-Americans, blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans. And um, we are a, a wellness organization from spiritual to the physical. And we, are, we just got awarded the PCF grant, and we're gonna be doing a lot of good work here coming up in the future. That's Leaders Become Legends and us three co-directors. I'm one of them, Uh, my boy Derrick Thompson and James Turner. Um, Yeah, so it's three of us. Yes, my advice to you uh, moving on as a musician or to any up-and-coming musicians would be proper balance. You gotta have the balance of the art and the business. See, coming up, we fall in love with the art. Like what we was doing in my career, making that song, the hours we spent on that, getting stuff right, you know what I'm saying? That's the love, that's that's what we do, that's the, the gift that the Most High blessed us with, the talent. In all actuality, that's only 10% of this business. The other 90 is the actual business, the branding, the marketing, the contracts, the licensing, the publishing, the placements, I would suggest that you have proper balance, because I didn't have that. We was in love with the art. We was in love with coming up with the dopest flow, the illest rhymes, spending weeks on making a beat and not even picking up a book. Okay, once this great piece of this mosaic is complete, what are we going to do with it? So now that's where the business starts. And my son is 13. He's his own artist. He has music on. Titles, Spotify, all of that. He's 13, bro. And I'm telling him, you gotta get your business in line. You know what I'm saying? And that's just that's that's the main thing, bro, that we lack as artists and musicians in our community. That's not having our business game up. These young cats now, they they they're a little bit better than we was back then. I, I will say that. They own their stuff, you know what I'm saying? But we can always do better. You know, owning our masters, you know, owning everything, not, you know what I'm saying, making sure that you're registering your songs when they're out. But you know how many songs I have out that I haven't registered with my ASCAP? Mm. It's ridiculous. Like, uh, Gift of Gab, Rest in Peace. He had so many songs that are not registered, bro, that he can be, they're just now registering his music because he's passed and his kids can eat off of that, them royalties, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that's the most important thing. And even with me, I got songs on Law & Order right now. Like I had to fight for that money because I didn't do the work. When I went to prison, it got lost in the shuffle. So I had to get out, get in touch with the people at, at, at Fox and at NBC to actually get my writer's credit for the songs that I did work on that are playing in law.
1: television show, Law & Order. Yes.
0: I was sitting in prison watching it. And I was telling people, <laughs> that's, what that's what me, was- me on there. <laughs> and they were like, "Man, get out of here. I said, bro. Then we it'll come on again, we'll catch a rerun. I say, everybody be quiet. They hear me rapping and be like, oh, that is you. Like I told, look, I didn't get no money that whole time I was in there, bro. And when I got out, I had to get in touch with the people and get my paperwork right. Now I'm getting paid for the rest of my life. So the business, man, it's 90% business, 10% music, bro. Because you can work out till you're blue in the face, come home and eat cheeseburgers all day, bro. You're going to be running in place. You know what I'm saying? So you it proper balance is everything, man. And that's the key to life to me. Like I have to balance out relationships, work, art, my business, self-care. You know what I'm saying? like you have to have proper balance with everything. Like, especially spiritual and carnal. That's another thing I battle with. We spend so much time balancing, you know, living in this carnal reality. Like, this is what we know, this is life, you know. But in all actuality, you're gonna be dead longer than you're alive. But we invest how much of our energy into this carnal life that can be gone, just like that. So think about investing time in the spiritual realm and balance out that time as well. It's critical. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know what deity or if you even have a belief, but, you know, I try to spend more time prayer in my belief, more time, you know, in the realm of the ancestors, you know? Because you see how life is going right now, bro. People are dying like it's nothing. I just buried my daughter's mother. Then I had to bury my friend I was in prison with. Then I had to bury one of my clients Now I got a funeral coming up for my guy six that just got killed last week. This is all within a month. So it just humbles me, because I know we're mortal, bro. And so where are we investing our time? Of course, we want the bag. Everybody want the bag. I want the bag. I want to leave my daughter with the bag and my grandson with the bag. But you got to live for today. And you got to also invest in that afterlife, man. I'm really big on that, so. Proper balance, beloved, in everything is key.
1: This is a special episode that was funded specifically by the Oregon Community Foundation through their Creative Heights program. I'm so incredibly grateful to them for recognizing our efforts and really witnessing what we're trying to do with this work. As a result of their generous funding, we were able to pay this artist substantially more than a living wage to work on this interview with us. And we're so honored to be recognizing the great work that they've been doing over years and years and years that brought them to this point in their career. So thank you again to them and thank you to OCF for creating more opportunities for artists and culture bearers to share work and share ideas it just means the world to us. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Future Prairie and all of the fun projects we're working on over the next several months, just head over to futureprairie.com and we also welcome your thoughts and ideas and feedback. Please feel free to reach out anytime, online, on social media, at Future
0: Prairie. only uh, Wake up, get up, bring them to the life. It don't happen overnight. Nobody put me on. I made it up the hard way. Made it, made it up the hard way. Made, made, made it up the hard way. Made,